Hello and welcome to another episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. This episode is a special one because it's just going to be an interview. Our guest is a successful musician from my hometown of Calgary, Alberta. He is best known for being the original drummer for Three Dog Night, a role which he held from 1968 to 1974, returning for a second stint with the group from 1981 to 1984. He's also performed with groups such as SS Fools, The Ohio Players, and Tommy Chong's band Little Daddy and the Bachelors. I'm very happy to welcome Floyd Sneed to guess that record. All right, so how are you doing, Floyd? I'm doing good, thanks. You know, I've been a little, a little healthy, but I'm fine. I'm okay. That's good. Yeah. Well, uh, it's great uh, to be interviewing you, and it's funny how quickly this all came together. I just found out about you literally the other day. I was reading about uh, Three Dog Night. I couldn't believe that you were from Calgary, and uh, I just oh yeah, I just knew I had to talk to you for that reason alone. Because I've heard songs like "Joy to the World" my whole life, and it's cool how someone very from, good. I understand. Yeah, yeah, how it was cool how someone from my hometown played a part in all of those hits. Now, uh, I always like to do uh, some preparation for these interviews, and one of the most interesting things I read about you uh, is that you have quite the connection to the history of Alberta. You're a descendant of the Amber Valley settlement. For those who don't know, uh, Amber Valley is north of Edmonton and was one of the first black settlements in Alberta made up of African Americans from the southern U.S. who immigrated to Canada. I I thought uh, it was so cool to hear that you were a descendant from there. I'd be curious to learn a bit more about your roots there and then how your family ended up in Calgary. Well, all I know is from uh, being a child, uh, my parents' parents, Moved from the south, deep south, up to Emin- up to Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta area, mm-hmm. and that's where a settlement was started called Amber Valley that you just mentioned, and that that's where I was born and grew up basically. Okay, and then yeah. and then you guys ended up down in Calgary. In Calgary, that's right. Now, as a as a kid growing up in Calgary, what uh, do you remember? What area of the city you lived in? Well, just around in the East Calgary area. Okay. Yeah, yeah. About, about four blocks from the Stampede Grounds, at 4th Street and 12th Avenue Southeast, that's where I live. Okay, yeah. All my childhood here. Uh, I was just going to say, it's, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, really the only person that I know that would have been in Calgary um, at that time, you were growing up, yeah. is my grandma. Um, but she, okay. she grew up in Mount Royal. So, like the oh, okay, uh-huh. the ritzy part of town, basically. The ritzy part. I was just gonna say that her family was had a few dollars. Yeah. Um. So it's okay. it's kind of cool to to hear um how you know you or you were around at that same time growing up in a completely different part of town. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. And it kind of leads into my other question because um you know I I find uh in today's world Calgary is quite a a diverse city. Um, you know, there's a lot, uh-huh. a lot of different groups here that are more represented now, which is a great thing. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, but I have to imagine that when you were growing up, it was very white and not diverse at all. Um, so Absolutely. What, what was it like? Absolutely. Yeah. What was it like being in a black family in Calgary at that time? Very white. 
<laughs> oh, this, as you were saying, a lot of Caucasian people there, you know, when we grew up, but there was a few, uh, my cousins and a few other, couple of Chinese kids, but it was very, not that diverse, you know, so, but I had no problem in Calgary, had no problem at all. Right, yeah. I guess, uh, you know, uh, obviously you ended up getting into music, but when you were growing up in Calgary, did you have any other uh, interests? Like, did you play sports at all or anything? I played I played all kinds of sports. I played a lot of ice hockey. Nice. In the Inglewood area. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I, played hockey. I played hockey for about from 7, 8 years old to 15, 16, something like that. You know? So I played quite a bit of hockey in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah. I uh hockey's my favorite sport, so that's that's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, uh-huh. Um now your initial interest in music came from your parents, is that correct? Yeah, I played in church, you know, quite a bit. Right. I must played oh and my dad played a little guitar and piano, you know, so I picked up some of my music roots from them. Okay. But uh yeah. And and when did you start playing drums? When I was about let's say 14, 15 years old, I could afford to bring up to buy my own drum. Okay, so you you started a little yeah. la- started a little later then. A little later, uh-huh. right? Uh, what was it about drums that made you gravitate towards them? Well, um, my brother used to be in a band before I was even interested in music, and he used to practice at, at my house. And I got very interested in the drummers that my brother had used in his couple of bands. I, said, I want to play the drums. When I get a little older, I'm going to have to go buy my own drums, and that's what I did. You know, and uh, practiced and got a little better, joined a couple of bands around Calgary, and uh, just went from there. Right. And I have to think that when you were growing up, Calgary probably didn't have uh, any ability to sort of expose you to different types of music, really. Uh, How were you eventually exposed to genres like rock and roll, for example? Well, uh, actually, there was just basically all country in Calgary at that time. Yeah. But a group a group from Edmonton used to come down to Calgary called West Dacus and the Club 93 Rebels. They used to come down and play at the gardens quite often. You know, that's where I got interested in music with the drummers they had in their bands, you know. So that's how I got really interested in, in drums from the old-time big band drummers and these drummers that used to come with these other bands from Edmonton. Now, with your your sort of early bands that you were in, um, what was uh, was it sort of difficult to get shows if you weren't uh, like a country band? Well, we were just starting at that time too. You know, we weren't very experienced, Mm -hmm. but uh, we had to have a little bit of knowledge and experience before we got into the gardens because that was the place to play in Calgary. You know, at that time. Now, I guess uh, you could call it sort of your first. Uh, break into the music industry, um, but you were in the same circle with another famous Calgarian, Tommy Chong, uh, and you ended That's up right. you ended up in his band uh, Little Daddy and the Bachelors. Um, and That's I, right. I understand Tommy was married to your sister as well. So is that where your connection? That's, right. that's where your connection with Tommy starts. One way, you know, one of the ways where I got into music was playing with Tommy. I thought it was uh, interesting to see that uh, that Little Daddy and the Bachelors ended up becoming uh, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, who uh, recorded for Motown. That's right. Uh, you That's s- right. Uh-huh. And you split with them before that change occurred, right? Yes, I did. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but yes. 
and, and after that, you decided to move to uh, Los Angeles, which, of course, ended up being a very good move. That's right. I knew that uh, Los Angeles was, was the place for music. And so uh, after a couple of jobs I had in Calgary, I decided just to go down to Los Angeles. And that's what I did. And, uh, you know, met musicians in a couple of different bands and finally ended up in Three Dog Night. Yeah. And I, I, was, going, I was going to say, so in, in 1968, you ended up meeting... Danny Hutton, Chuck Negron, and Corey Wells, uh, who are, of course, right. the uh -huh. lead singers of Three Dog Night. How did you get introduced yeah. to them? Well, I was working in a band at the Garden with my little band I had at that time. Back in Calgary. And one night, yes. Uh -huh. And one night we were playing, and one of the uh, bands, uh, one of the members of Three Dog Night happened to come in, and at that time they were looking for a drummer. They had everything. All the instruments in the band except the drummer. So they liked one of the guys that came that night from Three Dog Night, liked the way I played and introduced himself and said, They're looking for a drummer, might I be interested? And I was because they already had management and they had a, a record company waiting for the whole band to get together to record. So I jumped on that right away and, uh, you know, we recorded and had our first hit record and went on from there. There you go. I uh, yeah. I was reading that uh, the first official Three Dog Night show was at the famous Whiskey A Go Go in Hollywood. Do you have any uh, recollection of that performance? That's right. Wow, where did you find that out? I was just <laughs> doing my research. <laughs> well, very good. You were there. Yeah, that's where one of our first gigs in the in the limelight, so to speak, we played. Right, Whiskey A Go Go. That's, yeah. pre that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a good place to play. Um, it is. Uh -huh. I'd love to, uh, to break down some of the, the big hits with Three Dog Night with you, but before doing that, um, I just wanted to ask you like, what it was like to be in L.A. in that period because you know, for, mm -hmm. for me, the, the late 60s, early 70s was kind of like my starting point with music. Um, and so yeah, that was a lot the basic starting point. For music, yeah, uh, you know the R and B, uh, R and B. Uh, I'll say the top forty records are starting to get very popular. Besides country music in Calgary, mm -hmm. so we got in at a, at a great time in music. Yeah, so, and and you know you yeah. you hear so much about L A uh, in that period because you know in a lot of ways it, it was the center of the music business and it kind of still is to this day. Um, so right. Yeah, just like what what was it like being in that scene at that time? It was really interesting. You're not in Calgary anymore. Yeah, and then you were you were in a place that was alive with the movie industry and and music. Mm -hmm. So we were we're in the right place to get something going on, you know. So we're very happy to be in Los Angeles. Right, and. Yeah. Also, reading about that era, it kind of seems like all the musicians were kind of living in like, you know, Laurel Canyon and and the the canyons up up in the hills there. Um, is that? Yeah. Did, did, were you spending time up there? Absolutely. Yeah. A couple of a couple of the guys in the band lived in Laurel Canyon. Cool. The bass player Joe Sherman lived in the canyon, and Timmy Greenspoon, the organist. Cool. He prepared. And one of the singers who lived on the bottom of Laurel Canyon. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Guitar Works. 
One of Canada's top independent music stores for over 30 years, Guitar Works carries a huge selection of musical instruments from the biggest brands of music, including Gibson, Fender, Martin, Yamaha, and Paul Reed Smith. Visit any of their three Calgary locations or shop online at guitarworks.ca and join the Guitar Perks program to earn money back with every purchase. Guitar Works, your total guitar store. This episode of Guess That Record is also sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing company headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, working with clients in different industries from all over North America, including Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Marvel Marketing services include website design and development, website maintenance, search engine optimization, public relations services, and social media management, amongst others. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. This episode of Guess That Record is also sponsored by Recordland, home to the largest selection of music in Canada. Buy, sell, and trade tapes, CDs, and vinyl. Located in Calgary's Inglewood neighborhood on 9th Avenue Southeast, visit them in person or online at recordlandcalgary.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at recordlandcalgary. And, and, and uh, I thought it would be fun to go over a few Three Dog Night songs uh, just to sort of hear your perspective on, on uh, how they came to be. And um, the first top five hit for the band was One. Um, yeah. So what was your reaction to that song sort of becoming the first big hit for you guys? And did you have a feeling it was going to well, be successful? Well, we had, we had a pile of records that different songwriters would send in hoping that we'd pick their song and do it, record it, you know? Yeah. And I can't quite remember who wrote the uh, one at the moment, but that was uh, one of the songs that we played right away. And so that sounded like a hit song on our way. And so we recorded it, and uh, our we recorded it the way we wanted to play it, the musicians and the singers, and it became a hit song. And that's what we did with basically all the songs that we played. Uh, that we played and made hits with their songs that other writers wrote and sent to us. I um I wanted to bring up uh, that uh, one was actually written by Harry Nilsson. The uh, Harry Nilsson, that's right. Yeah, no, that's right. Very that's fair. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, after one, uh, you guys reached the top of the charts for the first time with "Mama Told Me Not to Come." And I was quite, yeah. I was quite surprised when I saw that Randy Newman wrote that song because I'm a huge fan of, right. of of Randy, uh, and and that yeah. fact kind of slipped past me that he wrote that one. Um, how did uh, mm-hmm. how did that song end up with you guys? Well, I, I can't tell you how we. Well, we had a, a dub of that song that it was sent to us from his people, I guess, and it was basically just a, a rough version of that song. So we uh, we recorded, put our own uh, uh, our own thing to that song, and it became a hit. So mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and then the next year, you guys released "Joy to the World," which for me is it might be sort of the defining Three Dog Night song because it's usually the one I think of when I think of Three Dog Night. Um, well, that happens to be our biggest record seller. Yeah, so thanks for that. And it was uh, it was written by Hoyt Axton, and right, uh-huh. I I heard a story that it was originally written to be the theme song for a children's TV show, 
but I'm I'm not sure if that's correct or not. I'm not sure now about that. Right. But I think you're pretty close to it, but I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Yeah. All good. And the other cool thing about Joy to the World is that you actually uh, sing on it. You have the, the sort of oh, yeah. the, the really low I harmony. Think they, I sing bass on it, you know. Yeah. Did you ever uh, did you ever have a desire to sing more or were you just happy being the drummer? I'm happy being the drummer. Same <laughs> background, you know, so that's where I'm at. Right, right. And yeah. I, I was impressed on, on that. Uh, record like how how deep you can sing there did have has, has your singing voice always sort of been bassy like that i've always had a deep voice you know so yeah and um an old-fashioned love song uh that was a song mm-hmm. that uh was written by uh, paul williams and yeah. uh, he wrote for uh the carpenters and the muppets to name a few that's right did you uh did you guys just uh was it the same sort of process where like his songs just kind of ended up being passed along to you, and then you you went from there. And then we just put our own version to everything we received. Another uh, Hoyt Axton song from you guys that I like is uh, "Never Been to Spain." Um, well, there you go. It, oh. it uh, yeah. I, I I think that one's got a really cool sound to it. Thank you. Know, you. I love that. My favorite too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Never been to Spain. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it feels almost like a mix between maybe like a country song and an early Elton John song in a way. Oh, that's a good combination. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, the group's final number one hit came in 1972, uh, which was black and white. Um, that was, uh, that was originally a Pete Seeger song, I believe. I think so, but I'm not sure about that, but that's one of my favorite songs. And, um, it's that one, obviously, yeah, that was your third number one in three years, which is quite an impressive feat. Quite an impressive feat. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great, I read that song. I love all our hit songs, you know, so we spent a lot of time recording them and making, making them, put them our own, our own, um, thing for every song, you know, our own version. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted mm-hmm. to I also wanted to ask about uh, Shambhala because uh, that's another uh-huh. that's another one that I would sort of consider to be a defining song for Three Dog Night. Um, Me too. <laughs> yes, it was um, it was one of the group's last big hits, reaching uh, number three in uh, 1973. Um, was, okay, and that one that one was just li- like the others, where it just came to you guys and then and then you went at it. That's right. You know, that's right. I was going to ask, uh, when you were in the studio, what was, uh, what was the process like of, of making a song back in those days? Because obviously it's well, um, a very different we, process than it is today. Well, we had a very good time in the studio. We had a whole pile of records to decide which, which ones we wanted to record. So, But we had a good time in the studio just putting our own style to all these records that we would have put out, you know, so... We just had a good time going through all these piles of 45 that record companies would send us and personal songwriters, you know, so we picked and choose the one that we thought that, you know, that we could do a good uh, job recording. Right. And, yeah. you, you know, back in those days, of course, everything was done on tape. Um, so yeah. I guess with, as the drummer, um, you know, was it basically like you had to kind of get, nail a perfect take pretty quickly? So that you didn't waste too well, much tape, or 
Well, most of the time we had to probably uh, play a song four or five times just to get it right, you know? Not that any instrument needed to be picked out and done over again. The whole thing had to be together, you know? Yeah. But we had a time picking out songs and recording them. Some, sometimes we had to record the same song maybe five, six times, maybe seven, you know, just to get it right. But it was fun, so it was no problem at all. Yeah. And did you guys, did you record, like, live all together at the same time? No. Um, the um, Yes, we did. Not all the time, but most of the time, uh, we sang together. That's how you can get the original sound from everything. You know, everybody doing it together. Even if there may be a little mistake here and there, it didn't come through to the public. Right. You know, but... Uh, that's where we did things uh, basically all together at once so we get the feel right and, uh, you know, just to get everything copacetic. Yeah. And yeah. listening to all the Three Dog Night, hit, like all, all of these songs in preparation for this interview, um, it, it got uh, me asking a question to myself. What is the style of Three Dog Night? It's individualized. <laughs> we have our own style, our own sound was uh, we didn't sound like anybody and we didn't sing like anybody and that was our thing yeah three dog night I, yeah. I i do feel like though there there is almost a kind of swampy southern feel to a lot of the songs okay uh-huh yeah Bad. i'll go for that <laughs> um yeah another thing that um that kind of struck me uh when doing uh research for the interview was that you guys uh, a, lo- a lot of the time, you didn't write your own songs. You were you were given songs. How come uh, that was the case? Nobody in the band was a, a really a songwriter, so to speak. A completed song that's ready to record, but uh, there was really nobody in the band that uh, wrote a song, complete song that was uh, valuable enough to record. Right. So we just did other material and songs, you know. So. Nobody was against that. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely worked. Yeah. It worked for you guys. So there's uh, a... There's, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to ask you some questions about your drumming style. Um, I found a, a concert film of uh, Three Dog Night performing in Rochester, I believe, in about 1970. And uh, I watched wow. I watched your drum solo, and it's uh-huh. I, I felt like you had a lot of power to, to your playing. And... I also noticed at one point you ditched the drumsticks and started bashing the drums with your hands. And the only yeah. the only other drummer I've seen do that is uh, John Bonham from Led Zeppelin. So I tried to uh, copy a lot of his of his style a little bit, you know. Yeah, my favorite drummers, you know, Led Zeppelin is one of the best groups ever. I also noticed in that same solo, uh, you were playing uh, with a traditional grip instead of sort of the more common match grip that you usually see drummers use. Um, so where did you sort of learn those kinds of techniques? Um, from different, uh, a lot of, I picked up a lot of uh, jazz drummers' licks. You know, I listened to a lot of jazz drummers because they were good everything, you know, the jazz drummers. Yeah. And that's how I picked up a lot of my drum licks. Drum licks is my style, so to speak. Right. You know, so I listened to a lot of jazz drummers and some rock drummers, but I picked most of my uh, style up from jazz drummers. 
I think that is the the guys who uh, who know what they're doing. I feel like always kind of go to jazz in order to sort of uh, get better. So yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh huh. Um, and I also wanted to ask you about your drum setup, um, specifically from that 1970 show that I was watching. Um, I noticed mm-hmm. your tom setup was quite interesting because you had them set up in almost like a like a triangle, which I thought was kind of unique. I don't know it's if I've, seen, I've never seen a, you know, a drum kit like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I was a show-off man. You know, <laughs> I wanted to have the biggest drums and the most pom-toms of anybody out there. But uh, I just had some angles so I can hit them easily, you know. So that's yeah. another way I set up, set up my drums was the way I uh, wanted to set up my drums. Right. To make it easier for me. Yeah. And um, in terms of, like, uh, kits that you've used, do you, uh, like, have you always sort of used, like, the same brand of drums your whole career, or have you mixed things up over the years? No. I mean, Rush, Ludwig, Premier, um, four or five different sets of drums, different uh, drum companies. So. I also... Um, I also wanted to know uh, what what was it sort of like to tour with with Three Dog Night back in the day because you know the oh, yeah. the early seventies is probably like the pinnacle of of concert experiences. Yeah. So right. yeah, what was it like to be on the road with one of the top hit making groups of the era? It, it was wonderful on the road. I've been around the world almost one and a half times. Right. You know, playing all these different countries with Three Dog Night. You know, I'm the drummer to show off. So uh, I I loved it, you know. I I enjoyed all of that, you know. A lot of work, mm-hmm. but it was more fun than work. Yeah, you know. So yeah. Uh huh. I did some digging, and I saw that uh, Three Dog Night played at the Stampede Corral in Calgary yeah. three times in 1970, 1971, and 1974. Do you have any recollection? Do you have any recollection of those performances? Absolutely. When I was just a kid, to sneak in the Stampede Corral for hockey matches and whatever event was going on, we knew how to pick the locks. <laughs> <laughs> we knew how to pick the locks at that time to get in. I remember them building the Stampede Corral and selling the construction work as Kool-Aid. Wow. So, you know. It's, um, yeah, unfortunately, the, the corral, uh, they tore it down last year, I believe. Yeah. Um, because they're they're building a new convention center on the same site, but uh, yeah, I got I got to spend some time in there myself. It was uh, it always felt like you were going back in time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have to imagine when you that coming back and playing there with Three Dog Night uh, just would have been amazing to sort of come back to Calgary as a conquering hero like that. Oh yeah, Calgary. That was a big time. I said when I come back to the Stampede Grill, you put it here. You guys are the biggest band in the world. I said, well, uh, we're from Calgary. I want to be here. I love Calgary, so here we are. There you go. Awesome. Enjoy it while you can. Yeah. Now, in uh, in 1975, uh, you and uh, guitarist Michael Alsup and bassist Joe Shermie mm-hmm. uh, left yeah. Three Dog Night, and you formed the band SS Fools. Um Oh, well, right. Along with uh, Bobby Kimball, who would find later success uh-huh. with Toto.
was the goal of uh, SS Fools to sort of step out of the shadows of Three Dog Night and make a name for yourselves? Absolutely, absolutely. That was a very good band. Our own style, you know, our own style, and that's what happened. You know, we did our own, our own style. Mm-hmm. Three Dog Night style. Yeah. In the early 80s, uh, you rejoined Three Dog Night for one more run with the band. Uh, and during that time, you guys put out an EP called It's a Jungle. Oh. Uh-huh. And I... I listened to that record and I, I thought like, man, this is a pretty good little EP. It's, um, you know, lots of sort of interesting new wave elements and, and some reggae and stuff. Uh, but it was, obvi- yeah. it was very different from anything that three dog night had done to that point. Was the goal of that record mm-hmm. to try and reinvent the band for a new era? That's right. Just let's do try to do this some a different way or some other, you know, Every every record's a little different than the record before because you're trying different things, and that's what we did. You know, yeah, so. yeah. Um, now uh, I understand uh, that you've also done quite a bit of painting as well. Yes, that's what I'm painting today, as a matter of fact. Oh, good. Trying to get started on a new painting. I found a few paintings on my on my internet. Right. But um, that's what I'm doing in some of my spare time is just little artwork, you know. So. How did you get into that? I'm self-taught. They're also, you know. So. And what kind of uh, painting techniques do you use? Like, are you oil or... or uh... I do oil pastels. I do color markers. I have a variety of different paints and colors that I use. So I use a mixture of all kinds of things to paint with. We have reached the end of the interview here. So um, I'd like to thank... Floyd Sneed for taking the time to be on the show today. Um, once again, it's it's just so cool to see a Calgary boy that's played on some very famous recordings. So I really oh. appre- I really appreciate getting the chance to speak with you. Let's do it again sometime. Sure, yeah. I also quickly wanted to say thanks to John Zeka. John is currently working on a documentary called Kite on a String, which is all about Bobby Kimball. And he allowed us to play some SS Fools on today's episode. So I wanted to say thanks to John, and you should go check out his documentary when it comes out in January of 2023. And as always, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. The more you listen, the more often we'll be able to produce fantastic episodes. Also, tell your friends about us. If you know anyone that likes music, get them to check us out. We're also on Instagram at GuessThatRecord, so make sure to follow us there for updates and additional content. Remember to keep rocking, and we'll see you on the next episode of Guess That Record. Sonic Mystery.